Hello, this is Jim Wallace, and you're listening to a special edition of The Soul of a Nation, a podcast about how our faith should shape our politics and not the other way around. You can find Soul of a Nation on iTunes, Google Play, or on sojo.net. For more news, resources, and reflections about our current public health crisis, visit sojo.net slash coronavirus. Today, I'm speaking with Senator Chris Coons about leadership, ethics, faith, and politics during, as the Bible would say, such a time as this. Senator Coons is from Delaware, and he's recognized as one of the top three most productive senators of both parties. I've always been struck that Chris Coons is one of the few Centers to hold a master's degree in ethics from Yale Divinity School while he was there doing law school. I think he's our most theological senator. He's often one to bring people together across the aisle, but he does that not just by finding a compromise, but trying to bring a moral voice to our politics. So we're very glad to have Chris Coons with us today to bring that moral voice to these times, which are really turning our nation toward, I hope, these moral values that can bring us and hold us together. So welcome, my friend, to the soul of the nation. We're so excited to have you today. Thanks, Jim. It's great to be on with you again. So, Chris, let's start with this. How's your spirit? How's your spirit right now in the midst of all of this? Uh, troubled. Um, I... I work that my spirit is not weary. Um, I am concerned about where we are as a country, and um, I try to remain hopeful uh, based on what I've seen in Delaware um, this weekend, the weekend before, uh, what I've seen in person, what I've seen on social media, uh, what I've seen of uh, coverage of uh, protests and rallies and speeches, uh, not just in my hometown, but around the country, I am hopeful um, that this may be a moment of real change in the heart of our nation. Um, but I'm also concerned that um, this is a moment of great tension. Um, President Trump, in a really remarkable public act last week, uh, used um, police force, used tear gas and rubber bullets to clear the square in front of St. John's Episcopal Church, uh, the, the square that separates that from the White House, and sort of strode over to uh, wave a Bible and stand there grimly, uh, and has made a series of public statements about uh, being determined that he will be the law and order president, and speaking both on a conference call with governors and uh, then with senators and then publicly in the Rose Garden, in a way that I'm concerned is dividing us further and is increasing the chance of conflict. So how's my spirit, Jim? It's troubled by the times. Uh, it's comforted by the knowledge that uh, God is a sovereign God and a God of righteousness who hears and listens to um, the cries of the oppressed and the marginalized. And I am uh, hopeful that our nation uh, and the people of our country have ears to hear. I am too. I am too. As you know, Bishop Buddy, Bishop and myself and some others were out at that very place at St. John's 
for a prayer vigil last week in the midst of all those protests. And I have never, ever seen so many young white people, young white kids out in the street along with, involved with uh, African-American young people who were leading the whole thing. And it struck me how uh, this video, this, this picture, this moment that we saw around the world of a white police knee on a black neck has, has transformed people's hearts and minds. Every black parent I know uh, saw their own sons and daughters under that knee or themselves. And most white parents I know and their white young people never saw themselves and they're now beginning to wonder what that must be like. And the whole conversation is a transformative one. And whether it leads to change is what a lot of people are hoping and indeed praying for. And you you often speak of these issues of faith and what it means to be a Christian, follow Jesus, and in the midst of politics. And so as you think about your ethics and div school and law school, and you're in the middle of all this, in Delaware, you saw it going on, your home state, all weekend long. What What's going on? What's politically going on, but also even morally or theologically going on, do you think? Well, you'll remember that one vision of the charge of ministry is to um, afflict the comfortable and com- comfort the afflicted. One of the things I think is going on is that uh, those who are too comfortable with privilege, with their position in our society, with their belief that they're really not involved, not responsible, not engaged with the ways in which uh, deep and embedded inequality in our society, uh, rooted in race and in the founding, stain the original sin of our nation, which is the sin of slavery and uh, racism. I, I think there are millions of white Americans who are getting comfortable with being uncomfortable, who are coming closer uh, to moments of realization that their privilege has carried them um, through times in our society, whether it's through the current recession or whether it's in a way that's given them access to higher quality health care to come through this pandemic, or whether it's a way that their privilege makes them secure or distanced um, from moments of violence or turmoil. Um, in my own family, in my own community, we've had some very intense conversations in my own office about the ways that uh, white privilege has advantaged many of us, myself certainly included, in the arc of our lives. And at the same time, uh, my hope is that we will continue to see uh, moments uh, like your prayer vigil in Lafayette Square or the uh, rally that I was at this Sunday in Middletown, Delaware, uh, where a, a wide range of uh, pastors, priests, a mom, a rabbi gave voice to the prayers of those who are so often voiceless in our society. So um, I'm hoping this is a Kairos moment, a moment of, of pivoting, and that requires a change of heart um, on the majority, um, in the majority, uh, as well as on the part of those um, who for too long have been silenced or silent. So um, we had a remarkable rally on Sunday, Jim, in Middletown, Delaware, where a thousand people gathered um, from every background, race and age and faith. Um, and managed to be together uh, peaceably, um, vocally, and to listen to a wide range of witnesses of different faiths, youth leaders, elected leaders, community leaders, and then to 
march several miles through the center of downtown. I've never seen a protest that large uh, in Middletown, uh, and I've never seen one that sustained in Middletown. And in my little state of Delaware, we've had major protests in Wilmington, Delaware, our largest city. Uh, but we've also seen them in small towns like Seaford and Rehoboth Beach and Claymont, Newark, and in Middletown. And I know that in other states all over the country that's happening, the protests aren't just in Philadelphia, they're in Erie. They aren't just in um, you know, Chicago, they're in Peoria. They aren't just in um, Seattle, they're in Walla Walla. And that means that there is an awakening of hearts um, and a movement of feet um, in the country um, from sea to sea. And so my hope is that that will then lead to um, pressure for real change which frankly is mostly gonna happen at the state and local level. Although we here in the federal Congress certainly have our role to play as well. So you're, you're speaking of this watershed moment. You talk about a Kairos moment. You stated in a local news outlet, you said our country has a historic opportunity in this moment to fix broken systems, to rewrite unjust laws, to remake our culture for the better. We have to seize the moment and demand with our words and votes that real change finally happens. What's a Kairos <laughs> moment? What are you? That's a word that I love people to understand what you mean as a political leader by what might be and now, right now, a Kairos moment. I, I think, uh, Jim, of a Kairos moment is a moment where um, a basic fundamental change can happen uh, because there is the, the action of God in history touching hearts, moving people, um, seeing a moment of crisis as a moment of transformation. Um, as you know, when there is sin, when there is brokenness, when there's division, um, we can't be reconciled to each other until there is um, a confrontation with our own history, uh, a willingness to be open to challenges or criticism of our own uh, behavior and our history and our hearts. And then a willingness to repent, which, as you know, literally means to turn around. Um, only then can we make real progress. So to me, um, the, the eagerness, the enthusiasm for reading, for learning, for hearing from each other, uh, and then for um, challenging local structures and being willing to make change uh, is hopefully where this is headed. Um, it is... Um, it has been a more sustained um, and a more broad and a more deep movement um, than I had expected, frankly, given um, the current moment. There are so many other things going on between uh, the national pandemic uh, and um, the ways in which we're now in recession. And I mean, there are lots of other challenges on America's plate um, that to have day after day, now week after week of mass protests uh, directly related to the killing of George Floyd and a call uh, for a transformation around racial justice um, has both surprised and encouraged me. And my hope is that it will be sustained and that it will be informed uh, by a perspective of faith. As a senator, you just today, I believe, co-sponsored a new bill, a new bill in the, in the Congress, House and Senate on policing. But you also have been a county official at the local level. And you said the change must happen at both the local level and the national level. So what are you proposing in the Senate and the House and what kind of change has to happen at that county, local, city level as well? Well, Jim, you know, most uh, police departments in our country are state and local. And 
if there's going to be change around practices that promote accountability, uh, like the universal wearing of body cameras, uh, changes in policies around use of force, uh, a registry that uh, ensures that a police officer who's been um, so significantly disciplined for uh, abusive force that they are decertified, that they are uh, removed from the role of those who can work as police officers. If there's going to be movement around issues like that, the elimination of chokeholds as a matter of policy and training, um, investment in um, community resources that are needed to help shift off of police and into the community, um, the opportunity to address mental health and behavioral health and addiction. If all of that's going to happen, it's going to be led at the state and local level, um, but we federally can help catalyze it. Um, the bill addresses a number of the things I've just touched on, but um, it also tries to narrow the existing program by which surplus military equipment is um, transferred from the federal government to state and local law enforcement, uh, where I think some restrictions in terms of policy and usage and the type of equipment and material um, make perfect sense. Um, there's also some other changes in terms of federal civil rights laws uh, and how the Department of Justice um, can engage with and oversee change in police departments that uh, are found to have a pattern and practice of behavior that violates civil rights. So I, I do think there's a, a federal role to be played. Um, that legislation uh, will be taken up in the House and probably passed. Uh, it'll be debated uh, here in the Senate. And my hunch is, uh, given the configuration of the Senate, it will not progress this year. Um, but my hope is that we will ultimately find um, some common ground between Democrats and Republicans and, and push through legislation that can actually make a difference uh, here in the Senate. You know, Jim, one of the really frustrating aspects of being a senator this time has been um, even where there are senators of goodwill willing to work across the aisle, um, the partisan divide is very broad and fairly deep. Uh, and President Trump is already making it clear that um, he won't support this bill and, and any of its components. So um, we have to remain hopeful and remain engaged and believe that um, broad scale, a peaceful um, action by um, citizens all over the country may yet change hearts. But I think the next few weeks, even the next few months are going to be a tough slog for those who are hoping for swift federal action. You and I have often talked about what you just mentioned, bipartisanship, reaching across the aisle. And really, you are my my uh, my uh, observation is you're more trusted by more people on both sides of the aisle. But in a moment like this, why why can't we get people on both sides of that Republican Democrat split to talk about equal justice under the law? One of your fellow senators marched yesterday and talked about he walked past the Supreme Court and looked up, and there it was equal justice under the law. Isn't that something that should bring us together? Republican, Democrat, shouldn't that bring, that we, well, we saw what happened on that video to a black man. And that happens all the time, so often for so many years. And so many people of color are so weary, so weary and wailing of that happening over and over again. But this time I'm seeing a lot of you know, white parents and white kids saying, wait a minute, uh, this is wrong. This isn't acceptable. I told a whole bunch of young baseball players last night, this is happening to your teammates. Uh, is this acceptable to you? 
And a lot of them are saying, no, it's got to change. So couldn't this bring us together, even across those bipartisan lines, or at least should it not bring us together? It certainly should, Jim. You know, this is exactly the sort of moment when things that long seemed impossible may become possible. Uh, and a lot of that starts with your own heart, with taking a hard look at people who uh, are your teammates, your classmates, your neighbors, your co-workers, um, your parishioners, people you know in different settings and where you've never had a hard conversation, uh, where African-Americans or people of color haven't risked speaking up and saying, how can you accept this? How can you tolerate this? Um, and where whites, those in the majority culture, who really have, I think, the obligation of moving first and of listening and then acting um, can stand up and demand change and continue to sustain um, their voices, our voices in a chorus that says um, things that have been left aside for too long should be taken up. Um, there is a bill that would make lynching a federal hate crime um, that has languished in Congress for years. I've been a co-sponsor of it. Um, for quite a while, and it should be passed. That is a part of the bill introduced today. There is a bill um, to prohibit uh, racial and religious profiling uh, by police. That's languished for several years in the Senate. That is also part of the bill that was reintroduced, that part of it, it was introduced with the bill today. Um, it's only going to happen if we have people come together and be willing uh, to take some risks. But I'll remind you, Jim, there were decades uh, where the prevailing political wins were to get tough on crime and where candidate after candidate, campaign after campaign, both Republicans and Democrats simply ratcheted up uh, sentencing uh, and policing in a way that ultimately produced um, a nation where we have more people incarcerated than anywhere on earth and where the burden of that incarceration falls so heavily on communities of color. Starting a few years ago, with a very central role played by a wide range of faith communities, um, we here in Congress have taken up, have debated, and ultimately recently have passed criminal justice reform that begins the process of ratcheting down uh, some of the harshest uh, three strikes laws, the lifetime sentences for uh, nonviolent uh, drug-related offenses. Um, and I think it is possible that a similar moment may be here in terms of how we see policing in our communities, uh, and how we respond to uh, episodes of um, the taking of life um, in ways that just visually, just from the moment you see it, strike you viscerally as just being wrong. I know people on the other side of the aisle uh, do talk to you, and you talk to, to, to them, and those are personal and, and confidential conversations. But I'm wondering, you're the Democratic chair of the Senate Prayer Breakfast group. And I wonder if that group, Democrats and Republicans, senators that meet and talk and pray and speak about their faith, if they have met since George Floyd was killed, or will you meet for the first time since he was been killed in our streets have become places where that conversation is happening everywhere. Is that the kind of thing that you can talk about in a prayer breakfast group in the Senate, where faith becomes part of it, where you can speak about your faith and what this means for this moment in our country's history. Is that the kind of place where you can have these kind of conversations? Well, Jim, your, your timing is uh, excellent. Um, I'm actually the speaker this 
uh, Wednesday morning uh, to prayer breakfast, and I've been wrestling with um, what is the right way uh, to witness to my colleagues, to um, speak to my own experiences, and to um, engage them, challenge them, uh, push them. Um, we typically don't um, make a point of um, speaking specifically to individual bills and saying, you know, why do you oppose this bill or why do you support that bill? Um, but we do often talk about the intersection of our own life experiences, uh, our own faith journey, um, and the ways in which we're putting that into action. So I think it's completely appropriate, um, particularly given the the depth, the significance um, of the of the spiritual side, the, the faith side of this moment, um, for me to raise a voice, raise my voice about this, and then um, to challenge others to engage with me about it. Um, I have reached out to a few of my colleagues to suggest that we might uh, take some actions, um, and I'm waiting for their response um, to show to the country, or at least to our colleagues here in the Senate, that it is possible to respect each other, to be from different parties, uh, and yet to speak with one voice in this critical national moment. I was in a phone call just on Saturday with um, uh, 50 black pastors in Ohio. These are the leaders of black churches all over the state, and they're terribly afraid of voter suppression, of people trying to block and steal the votes of people of color in a very tightly fought, you know, key state for the election. Been on those calls with black pastors in Florida, in North Carolina, in Michigan, Pennsylvania, and and here are the leaders of black churches trying to protect the votes of their own people from clear plans to to diminish or suppress, deny those those votes. And to me, that's the kind of thing that ought to bring bipartisan uh, rejection of that kind of, we're talking about suppression of the image of God, Imago Dei, as you know so very well. And isn't, isn't that something that when black pastors are leading this effort to protect black votes in key states for the election, that we ought to see more support from on all sides saying this is wrong. This is wrong. All of us have to protect each other's because we're all made in the image of God. And this is a voter suppression is about the image of God, not just politics. So how can we get to that place of where ethics and faith are in the front of the conversation about things like protecting black votes and protecting black lives uh, in situations of law enforcement? Now, well, Jim, um, where I would start with in that conversation is that uh, on some level, um, politics in this city and in this um, body in the Congress has become too much about power. Um, and the, the fights about uh, access to the ballot box, about vote by mail, about voter suppression, uh, about the Voting Rights Act, um, have become too polarized and too rooted in the question, um, how will this affect the next election for my team, or my party? And uh, I I regret deeply. It, it pains me that the Republican Party that uh, my own family uh, had a proud role in decades and decades ago, uh, which was um, shaped in many ways by the question of the abolition of slavery, uh, which played a central role in the civil rights movement and in the legislation uh, that empowered African-Americans to vote after a century of being excluded from the ballot box. 
um, that there would be such a sharp division between the two parties here at this moment in terms of that question of uh, whether or not we can come together to ensure uh, access to the ballot box. Um, it, it is something that's uh, unfortunately really divided us where uh, Republicans dedicate a lot of time and effort to talking about voter fraud. Um, and despite hearing after hearing, there's been virtually no evidence of a sustained incidence of voter fraud across the country. And Democrats talk over and over about voter suppression uh, and ways in which gerrymandering and uh, changes in the time and location of voting have been um, designed with precision to suppress the black vote in our country. Um, that division is one of many here, but it's one that we really struggle um, to cross. Um, as you know well, Jim, the the gospel in, in the late 19th century was seen as being uh, largely irrelevant to questions of politics, of um, the daily issues of housing and education and uh, labor and conditions in the workplace. Uh, and it was Walter Rauschenbusch, a, a, a Baptist, if I remember correctly, from Rochester, who, living and working in Hell's Kitchen in New York City, seeing the social conditions uh, of the late 1800s, um, seeing the ways in which people were suffering, um, crafted a, a view of the gospel and its relevance for the conditions of his time um, that led to his book, Christianity and the Social Crisis, and the launch of the social gospel. I was raised uh, in a church, a Presbyterianism, that um, really was largely supporting the power structures of the day, um, and that was deeply influenced by the social gospel and joined many other mainline churches in seeing our call and our ministry as um, connected to this world and focused on improving the conditions of people. And to your point, if people can't vote, um, if those who are who we know throughout our history have been most marginalized and most oppressed uh, can't exercise their their right to vote, they'll take to the streets and use other means to try and be heard and try and make social change. And in a democracy where all of us want a peaceful change, there has to be access to the ballot box um, or, or we're denying both the image of God in each of us. Uh, and we're frustrating the will of millions um, who are seeking a moment of change in this crisis. I'm looking in my bookshelf here, and right across from me is Walter Rauschenbusch, Christianity and the Social Crisis. And now it's happening all over again. I just did a book, as you know, called Christ in Crisis. This is the crisis of faith. It isn't a crisis of politics or not getting our... Uh, ideologies, right? This is really for us as followers of Jesus. This is a matter of faith, and you've made that uh, so clear in what you tried to say in speaking to the churches and to the state around the country. Now, then, your advice for faith communities. I remember it was literally the weekend that ended on June 1st that many of us around the country, Jewish, Muslim, Christian, Pentecost Sunday for us. On that Monday, we joined with 60 mayors around the country and talked about lament, 100,000 dead, the COVID dead. And to say this was unequal suffering, full of racial disparity, the virus had laid bare and exposed and verified. And it was, it was that kind of coming together with mayors, Republican and Democrat, in 60 cities for interfaith clergy that we raised those moral questions. And then Minneapolis happened right in the middle of the, all that. So I'm wondering if this could bring, uh, you know, be a time to 
to reclaim Christ, reclaim Jesus for those of us who say we are Christians and followers of his. It can't be just a political compromise or finding some middle ground here. What are the issues? As you're read Christian social crisis, right now you're speaking to Christianity and the social crisis right now. Well, Jim, I, I'm going to look to you for some guidance and advice as to how I can be a most effective voice uh, witnessing in the context that I'm in. Um, I, I go back to some basic principles. Um, I think any of us who would choose to witness uh, and to try and be faithful vessels of um, a focus on righteousness uh, would start by being humble, uh, would start by listening, praying, and reading. Um, and then if we can discern a clear direction and a voice, and I believe in this moment, in this context, we can, um, to act, um, to speak up, to, to risk uncomfortable conversations and, and actions we may not have taken before, to um, risk, whether it's in our, our home, our workplace, our community, or the streets of our city, um, going out and being heard. Um, one of the things that makes this moment particularly challenging is so many people um, are legitimately concerned about public health and the pandemic, um, but at the same time are feeling called out to demonstrate. So um, there are lots of ways that we can act, uh, that we can um, support organizations that are advocating for change, that we can um, invite friends, colleagues, coworkers, family members to um, share with us their experience and their concerns. Um, and I think it's important in all of those actions um, to bring an element of faith into what we do um, if we are choosing to witness as Christians, not just as people engaged in politics. And there is a difference, I think, in how we approach moments of crisis. Um, I frankly think recognizing um, that of the divine in all of us, um, mm -hmm. making efforts to respect and listen to um, police, um, youth, um, community leaders, elders, elected officials, um, challenging others in ways that are that they can hear and that don't just treat them as two-dimensional cartoon characters. You know, there have been some striking visuals, uh, a, a United States Marine on, on post in full dress, uh, but with a, a piece of black uh, tape over his mouth that, on which he'd written, I can't breathe. Um, moments mm. of grace where, mm. you know, heavily um, um, dressed um, riot police stopping to comfort a African-American child um, who was scared of them and to talk with her parent and um, just have a moment as, a, as one parent to another saying, I'm not here to hurt you. I'm here to try and protect you. Um, and then moments where, you know, protesters have challenged police chiefs to take a knee with them, to pray with them. Mm. Uh, I don't mean to sound overly naive. Some of these moments do lead to real tension and confrontation. Um, but I think some of the most powerful images we have of protests from decades or, or, or longer past are moments of a flower put in the barrel of a rifle or a lone individual standing in front of a tank. Moments of vulnerability um, often lead to powerful moments of witness. Um, you know, there were moments in Birmingham and in Montgomery um, where peaceful action changed moments of hate and violence. Um, maybe not right in that instant, but certainly in how they were seen by a nation, and then action followed. 
So if prayer is essential and protest is required and policy is necessary, what advice do you have? You know elected officials locally, what they need. How can faith communities surround them and support them to raise these issues and to make the policy changes that you and I know are so necessary? How can faith communities reach out and be a, be a, be a support and a moral context in which these decisions can be made now in new and different and better ways? How can we help support them to do that? Well, Jim, you know, moving someone uh, often requires um, moving someone who is a member of Congress to change a position they've long had uh, often requires uh, bringing the argument to them in a different way, in a fresh way, in an unexpected way, but also giving them room um, to hear um, the argument or the witness or the moment differently than they have before. Um, I remember clearly uh, Sandy Hook um, a, a tragic massacre at an elementary school in Connecticut, and how several of my colleagues who, for their entire political careers, um, had been proud of the NRA endorsements they had, had um, cast themselves as sportsmen, gun owners, uh, and uh, fierce, defend excuse me, fierce defenders of the Second Amendment, um, who, after conversations with their own daughters or neighbors or uh, people um, in their congregation um, had had a change of heart uh, after reflecting on that moment. Um, a moment of intense pain and suffering and loss um, can, if given the opportunity, uh, reopen hearts that are hardened or closed. Um, and something about that moment um, in Sandy Hook and the the pain of having to sit across a table in our offices and listen to the parents who had lost their children. They came and visited with us and witnessed with us. Um, having to sit with um, the parents of uh, children who've been killed in police actions um, or to spend time um, hearing from and talking to uh, the family of those uh, who've been killed, I think will, if that sort of conversation happens, uh, ultimately move a number of my colleagues from where they've been to where they could be. Yeah. I hear a lot of mayors looking to faith leaders saying, help us. Help. We want to take action. We've got to take action. But we need your help to sort of raise this up. So it's a matter of creating a kind of a moral force, a moral conversation that can't be denied, even especially maybe at that local level. You know, where I hear people saying how long will these protests last? And I was looking at that over the week weekend and this quote from Ella Baker came to mind uh, 50 years ago, SCLC, this powerful woman who was really leading the SCLC under the leadership of Dr. King. She said this, uh, until the killing of black men, black mother's sons becomes as important to the rest of the country as the killing of a white mother's sons, we who believe in freedom cannot rest until this happens. And I can hear her speaking those words to us now, 50 years later, that this isn't just a protest, an event, or an incident, or one of many incidents, but something that really may be, to use your language, a Kairos moment that could change us, transform us, and give us the courage to make the changes that in fact justice requires and really faith requires. And your voice is one of the ones I'm most grateful for 
in those political arenas. And so uh, we want to, uh, to offer you our prayers and our support because we have to turn things around. And I think we're learning that in these days, a new generation, I think, isn't going to accept anymore what has become just an everyday experience for people of color. So thank you for um, raising these issues up. I want to, I wanna, you know, support you and all that we can do. And I think this can become a, a faith issue in many of our communities where the real decisions are going to be made. So I hope you are feeling that support from the faith community as you try and stand up and speak out and speak particularly across the aisles. Well, thank you, Jim. You know, that is a painful prophecy from decades past, and it helps focus and sharpen uh, my reflection and my work on this. Um, I come at this from a faith perspective because I think it's um, more than not in my life been through a faith context um, that wounds are healed, that um, wrongs are confronted, and that hearts are changed. Um, and in many communities in our country, I think we are desperate for the the engaged and the uplifting leadership of um, people of faith who can help um, engage um, and hold um, and then move um, the hearts of millions. So um, I look forward to that partnership. I'm grateful um, for your leadership and your witness. Um, and I, I hope for the forgiveness of all who listen. Um, if the change that we need and that we know will come um, is slower than righteousness would demand it must be. Well, when people meet with uh, senators, they often say, can we pray for you at the end? Uh, but I'm going to turn that around and say, if you would, being the prayer breakfast co-co-chair, if you in this moment as a senator, but as a Christian who one tries to put one before the other, if you would offer a prayer for us right now at this moment in this country, in our elected bodies and in our communities where these issues are literally being felt and talked out and spoken out and cried out on the streets. You've seen all over Delaware and you, as you say, little towns and little white towns in Iowa are having protests uh, this weekend. So something is happening. And I wonder if as a Senator, but as a, as a Christian, you would offer a prayer for us and this nation sure, at this point. Sure, Jim, I'd be happy to. Um, join me in a spirit of prayer, if you would. Creator God, author of our capacity for healing, for hope, and for peace, forgive us our nation's yawning, burning wound. Forgive us our decades of turning away from the suffering of millions of Americans, forgive us our indifference and inaction, challenge us, force us, call us towards this moment which you've placed right in front of us. Father God, we ask your urgency, your insistence, your demand, that if righteousness might roll down like mighty waters, if we might make our crooked places, straight, that you would lift our hands to the plow, that you would bind our hearts together and yoke us for this moment, that you would demand of us the urgency that you have felt 
with every mother's tears, with every fallen son, with every moment of pain marked from the very first day that the slave master's lash whipped any African slave on this continent to the most recent suffered loss of just a few days or moments gone by. As our founding father Jefferson said many now centuries ago, I too tremble with fear knowing that our God is just at what may become of our nation if we do not heal this wound. Lord God, bring us forward in this moment to finally do your work of reconciliation. Amen. Senator Brother Chris Coons, thank you again for joining us today. Thank you, Jeff. Great to be with you. To learn more about Senator Coons' work in the Senate and beyond, follow him on Twitter at Chris Coons. For more Soul of a Nation updates, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. And follow me if you'd like to on Twitter at Jim Waltz. Blessings to all of you for the soul of the nation. <laughs>